Hear this, the word of God. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Lord, we confess and believe that you, the transcendent triune God of the Bible, speak to us and you tell us what is and what isn't. The temptation to turn Scripture into a wax nose and make it say what we would like it to say is real. Guard us from that this day and challenge us today to come under the yoke of Scripture and to think your thoughts after you. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at the book of Galatians, we remember that Paul's relationship to these Galatian Christians was that of a father to a child. Because the Galatians had first trusted in Christ by the hearing of the word from Paul's lips. However, after beginning to read Galatians, it becomes immediately clear that problems had arisen from the time that they had first believed until the time that Paul writes this letter. In the book of Galatians, Paul is writing them for fear that they had fallen from grace, and hence that all of their sufferings as believers had been for nothing. Paul's overarching concern was that the Galatian Christians had unwittingly disposed of the gospel and were going back to something that wasn't the gospel at all. They had unwittingly taken to some teachers that had been associated with James, And so these poisonous teachers, as Paul calls them uh, in Galatians, they're likened to men from James who had come from the, who had caused the apostle Peter to sin. And we have this recorded for us in Galatians 2. Paul calls these teachers the party of the circumcision in 2.12. And this circumcision party required the Galatian Christians to be circumcised. And we can see this if we mirror read Look at what Paul is addressing in uh, Galatians 5.2. Galatians 5.2 reads, Behold, I, Paul, tell you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, Paul, of course, isn't talking about the medical procedure. He's talking about all of the freight that is loaded on to circumcision in the Old Covenant. And he's saying, if you are trying to be justified by the law, you've fallen by grace. It's to those people that Paul is addressing. Now, not only was circumcision required by these teachers, but also a host of other Mosaic practices required. In Galatians 4.9, Paul notes, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved to all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. For these teachers who would require more than the gospel requires for salvation and church admission, 
And for those who would believe the teacher's lies, Paul comes out with his severest language. And it's often been useful to compare Paul's interaction and greetings to the Corinthians, the Corinthians where there is a man that is having sexual relations with his father's wife. Paul has these nice flowery introductions, but in the book of Galatians, Paul gets right down to business. This is what Paul says, Galatians 3.1. We'll start with 1.6. That's pretty close to the chapter beginning, right? Start of the book. 1.6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul comes straight at him with both barrels and says, you stupid Galatians. Now, it's possible that these teachers from James unintentionally deceived Christians, including the Galatians. These men were Jews, and in some way, to their credit, they believed in Jesus as the Messiah, which is a good thing that's commanded for all people. But these teachers likely understood themselves to be coming along and completing the work that Paul began. From their perspective, they were preaching good news because they were willing to accept Jesus as the Messiah and incorporate the Gentiles into the people of God. They thought that makes us okay. Therefore, they thought they were participating in the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through him. And so the major problem that arose in the Galatian church during Paul's time, during Paul's absence, rather, was the question of how can the Gentiles lay hold of Abraham's inheritance? How can the Gentiles lay hold of Abraham's inheritance? And for these Judaizers, for these people in Galatia that are good Jews, have a high view of the Bible, have a high view of Jesus the Messiah, their answer was, You need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to add all of these mosaic stipulations. Now, how does the inheritance work in the Old Covenant? And how can the Gentiles lay hold of it? That's our question. Inheritance for the Jews was rooted in Abraham and regulated by the Old Covenant. And so only free male Jews could have access or have uh, eligibility for inheritance among the people of Israel in the Old Covenant. So if we look at Ezekiel 46, verses 16 and 17, I'll make sure I read your version. Ezekiel 46, verses 16 and 17 lay out for us expectations for who is eligible to receive the inheritance. Thus says the Lord God, If the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his till the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons." So the idea here is that, of course, a slave or a servant could be gifted an inheritance, but until the year of Jubilee comes, it's no longer his because the inheritance will belong only to the male free child. So slaves cannot receive an inheritance from the children of Israel, ultimately. 
The next passage we'll look at is Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. Ruth 4, verse 5. Got mixed up here. Joshua judges Ruth, right? Ruth 4, 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So the idea is that Naomi herself cannot receive the inheritance. It has to be an inheritance for her male lineage. So we see that women cannot normally receive an inheritance in Israel under the Old Covenant. And lastly, we'll look at Exodus 12, verse 43. Exodus 12, 43 reads, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every, man's, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Okay. So, thus foreigners, that is Gentiles or goyim in the Hebrew, they're not permitted to receive the inheritance of, the, of Israel unless they're circumcised. Now, this right of inheritance in Israel was firmly rooted in Israel. Since the Gentile Christians couldn't prove that they were Abraham's physical seed, the teachers thought, well, we could at least require them to formally be like the children of Abraham, namely like Israel. So the teacher's solution here in Galatia was to make the Jews and Gentiles one people by external appearance, by making them physically appear similar and by making them socially appear similar through Sabbath observances and festivals. This is their solution. Their answer to the question of how the Gentiles could be Abraham's descendants seemed to amount to a mere expansion of Old Covenant Judaism outside of ethnic Israel. Then they could be incorporated into Israel. Now, notice that's pretty much what God commands in Exodus that we just read, right? It's always been the case that if you're outside of Israel, if you're circumcised and come to believe in the God of the covenant, all is fine. But that's what they're doing in the New Covenant, this is a perfectly obedient response for faithful Jews who want to see the blessings of Abraham shared with the nations. Yet what they forgot is what Paul calls the apocalypse of faith or the revelation of faith or the coming of faith. Now let's be very clear here. God does not contradict himself. Paul was not saying that the circumcision of Gentiles was always inappropriate. It had its appropriate time and place in the Old Covenant. Paul is saying that at this point in redemptive history, circumcision is the sign of the Old Covenant. And although the Old Covenant was instituted by God and good, it was a tutelage system. It was a pedagogue. It was a system that was weak and beggarly, training people, preparing them for the faith that's to come. So far, Paul goes to say that it's the way of the flesh because it can't give life. It stands in the way of faith, which has now come, which has now been revealed. So circumcision and obedience to very aspects of the Mosaic law 
were obsolete because they've been surpassed by the coming of faith and the new covenant. And the appropriate sign at their stage in redemptive history, of course, is baptism. That is the appropriate sign for you at this stage in redemptive history. And that's what Paul points to the Galatians 2 in 3.27. For you are all baptized in Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, with that grand redemptive historical shift, that the reality has come, the time of shadows is done, for someone to go back and say, "Mm, I think I'll be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law with some of its ceremonial sanctions, uh, is really a step in the wrong direction. Now, we, for us, we, we might be tempted. These are good Jews. They're trying to be faithful. But with the coming of Christ, it changes everything. It is as though you've experienced your father returning from a war zone, or your mother, and once you see them, you say, you know, I'd really rather FaceTime you. Hopefully said no kid ever or parent ever. But that's exactly what the Galatians are doing. When the reality has come, they're saying, you know, the way we've been doing things is just fine. Paul won't have it. Paul won't have it. For the Galatians to accept circumcision is to ignore the fact that Christ has come. It's to deny their baptism. It's to deny that they've been clothed with Christ. And it's to obligate, obligate themselves to be justified by their own obedience. Through the Apostle Paul and our living Lord, they would have us to know this. You can either trust in Christ who fulfilled the law for you, or you can try to fulfill the law yourselves and perish. You can't have both. They're mutually exclusive. So how do Gentiles and Jews, how do we receive Abraham's inheritance? Paul makes this abundantly clear in Galatians 3, that Gentiles receive the Abrahamic blessing by faith. In 3.6, we see that Abraham, who came out of paganism to become the first Jew, he believed God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. He receives that blessing by faith, and that's faith alone. In 3.7, we're told that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. In 3.9, we're told that it's those who are of faith that are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And chapter 3, verses 14 and 29 speak similarly. Notice that in 3.26 through 29, Paul weaves together a tight argument And it sets forth how the inheritance works in the new covenant. In summary form, his argument runs like this. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God. 27, for you put on and were baptized in Christ. 28, for you are all one in Christ. 29, therefore you are Abraham's seed, objects worthy of inheritance. In other words, Paul is saying that because we have faith in Christ, We are one in union with Christ and receive the benefits of his obedience. Christ is the promised singular seed of Abraham, verse 16, and we are one united with him by faith. Therefore, we are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Because Christ is Abraham's seed and you by faith are united to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and God's child. All of that is received by faith. Please turn your attention with me to verse uh, 28. 
There is no Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Some of you, if you've memorized your Bible in perhaps the King James or the NIV, even the NASB, you'll be struck by there's these three antinomies or these three opposites, and the last pair, it says male and female. Some of the more traditional translations always rendered it male or female. Um, but the ESV gets it right, okay? Text is straight up. You know, the Greek is always, there's a chi at the end there. There's an and between male and female. And so this has been one of those interesting verses in the history of interpretation and leads us to ask the question of what was Paul arguing for in these three sets of opposites? Now, anachronistically, that is out of time order, uh, lots of Bible teachers have used this Bible verse uh, to support good and bad things, okay? Um, if we look chronologically just in the last 180 years or so in America, um, in the 1860s, Galatians 3.28 is used with obvious effect to argue for stopping slavery, right? There's no Jew and Gentile, right? Uh, in the 1920s, well, probably 1848 to 1920, it's used to support the, uh, the movement for women to have the right to vote, okay? And you'd, you know, the, the uh, allusions there, of course, are always to male and female and women having rights and being equal in the image of God and those kinds of things. Um, it was used in the 1960s to argue against segregation, right? If there's uh, no Jew or Greek, how can we... Uh, treat people differently on the basis of something as insignificant as the color of their skin. Well, lately it's been used to argue that gender isn't objectively linked to biology. That is, there's no male and female, and it's sort of a Gnostic argument where I can determine these things on my own, right? Um, now, what I want you guys to appreciate today, and by the way, all of those are fascinating arguments that we could get into for a long time, and unpack the biblical teaching on, okay? And some of you are gonna think this is a cop-out, but I want you to appreciate what Paul is doing here. Paul is in a quick and dirty argument. His point here is that we are one in Christ as we come to the Redeemer through baptism and faith. So these are each juicy topics, and I'm not going to address them in any detail. I would suggest that if you care to look at Paul's teachings on creation in the image of God, on his resurrection from the dead and the resurrection rubber stamping the fundamental goodness of the original creation, if you care to look into Paul in Romans, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4 concerning family relationships and women in the workplace, people like Lydia having jobs and being successful and Paul praising them for it, these all provide us with paths to think biblically on these subjects and ultimately answer what in the end is fanciful interpretations that have more to uh, do with us than they have to do with the text or Paul's concerns in Galatia. And so what I wanna do, I've already said too much, is I wanna focus on what Paul is doing in Galatia with his grand redemptive historical argument because that's what Paul's talking about. No. Paul is not concerned in his letter with these things, even though ultimately you can make applications and counter the cultural arguments. Paul 
although we might be interested in them, although we might want to hijack Paul to talk about what we want to talk about, Paul's point in Galatians 3.28 is that this is the last nail in the coffin of the traditional Jewish way of deciding who the children of God are, namely the old covenant regulation of who receives the inheritance. Remember, as one writer notes, Gentiles, slaves, and women were not required to keep the Jewish laws. They were not circumcised. They did not fully participate in temple worship and prayer. They were not, strictly speaking, fully members of the covenant community. This was the prerogative only of free Jewish males. Now, it's for this reason that Jews traditionally, and I'm told some today still pray, the three blessings, and this is how they go. Blessed are you, Hashem, that is the name. Blessed are you, God, king of the universe, for not making me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not making me a slave. Blessed are you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not making me a woman. Now, if you get your mind into the understanding of the inheritance of Israel, you're not going to take that in a, in, in a racist, in a uh, sexist, or in a, uh, I'm losing my place in the text, um, in, a, in a slave or in socioeconomic terms, right? You're not going to take it in that way. You're going to think, if these guys are staying consistent, they're saying, thank you for giving me access to full membership in the covenant, which would be the you know, best interpretation on the matter. But Paul is saying, all of that is obliterated, Okay. Your access to the throne of grace is not based on your gender. It's not based on your race. And it's not based on your socioeconomic status, whether you're a slave or a free man. Hence, you who trust in Christ have greater rights to Abraham's inheritance than those who were in Abraham's physical family tree, yet did not trust in Jesus the Messiah. You, friends, as you come to Jesus in faith, casting your cares upon him, Casting aside all of your efforts at self-improvement for the sake of your justification, you have been received as full members with all the rights and privileges of the children of God. So this leads us to ask, how do we identify ourselves? All of the things that we identify ourselves with, whether it be race, Jew or Gentile, whether it be our economic status, slave or free, or our sex, male or female, these can be of no avail for barring one from being Abraham's descendant. The thing that's going to bar you from being Abraham's descendant is if you are not of faith. That is the issue. All these previous seemingly important distinctions are leveled before the cross of Christ. All of those who could be identified in this world as belonging to one of those preceding pairs of opposites are said as they bow the knee to King Jesus and receive him in faith, all of those are said to be one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you look at the verses surrounding our passage, verse 28, you'll see that the only positive identity that's given in the passage is that of the believer's union in Christ. Look at this language, in Christ, as it repeats itself. Verse 26, it says we're in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, we're baptized and clothed. In who? Christ. Verse 28, we're one in Christ. Verse 29, we belong to Christ or we're Christ's. The only part of our text today that is not affirming our identity in Christ is verse 28a. 
And what is 28A doing? Verse 28A is busy destroying the idea that your identity as a Christian isn't anything else. As a Christian, your identity is not in being a Jew or a Gentile. It's not in being slave or free, male or female. No. There is no Jew nor Greek. There's no slave nor free. There's no male and female. Now, this word and in the last set of opposites, uh, it means and. It's not or. Traditionally, Bible scholars have translated that or because they liked the flow. You know, we've got uh, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. They, they just figured that was a good way to keep it consistent. But I would submit to you that what is at issue here is this is a, a, a glance back. This is a direct quote from Genesis 1.27. And in most times in the Bible, when we see uh, male and female, it's referring back to the original creation. So this is a quote from Genesis 1.27. And notice, of course, that is Adam and Eve in the pristine beauty and glory of creation, wanting nothing, lacking nothing, not lacking in righteousness, being positively holy. It's that passage that Paul is referring back to when he says there's neither male and there's not male and female. So I would submit to you that what Paul is arguing for is that the identity of the believer in Christ, it takes precedence in such a way that it takes precedence even over, even over God's good identity distinctions built into the first creation. It's saying that your identity in Christ, if you're a believer, is more solid, more fixed, more firm than your gender, than your sex, than what you're born with. It's saying your identity is first and foremost in Christ. It is something that supersedes even the first creation. Now, The significant marker is, are you of Christ's? Okay. Have you been baptized? And notice in our passage that baptism and faith are closely aligned. The New Testament does not know of a moment where you raise your hand to become a believer and then say, baptism's kind of optional. I'll think about that maybe when I make a deeper commitment. Um, baptism and belief are closely aligned. Now, of course, it's not the water of baptism that saves you. It's your faith. But, of course, the first command for the believer is believe and be baptized. Repent and believe the gospel. These are all you know, synonymous. So, for the world today, when we talk about identity markers... From the Christian perspective, there is one identity marker that matters. Are you washed? Have you been baptized? Have you come and bowed the knee to King Jesus in faith? So the world is simply divided into Christians and non-Christians. Paul reckons this identity in Christ as so crucial that he's willing to say that it supersedes the original creation. Now, mind you, Paul doesn't do this out of some disgust for the original creation. Paul is not a Gnostic. He's not arguing that the body is bad and the spirit is good and you can imagine what you like. He's not going there. But he is saying that your foundational reality in Christ is such a way, is such a thing 
that it even supersedes the original good creation. We must remember what our identity in Christ, our union with Christ, is about. It's not that we're a social club that gathers together and is one, sort of gathered around a familiar name and some familiar thoughts. No, God forbid that the church exist only to become an organization that's maybe destroyed racism, slavery, and sexism, only to forget the goal of all of this, which is the new creation. And that is what Paul is fascinated with. Paul is fascinated with the new creation. The distinguishing factor about the church, about us, is that we are in Christ and we await his coming where he will restore all things. By being in Christ, we are united to the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God who lived perfectly as our righteousness and died in our place for the penalty of our sins. By our union with and identity in Christ, we have suffered and died with him and will soon live and reign with him. It is only in Christ that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and there's no male and female. For those who are outside of Christ's church, those realities are the hard realities of life. People will hate them and not accept them for various reasons. Incidentally, for you, you carry that baggage and the baggage of being called a Christian. You get to suffer for being Christ. Not only uh, being Christ's, not only do we carry the baggage of our race, economic, and status, and our sex, but you are Christ's. This is why it's imperative when you wake up in the morning that you remind yourself of your foundational reality, that you are in Christ, that you belong to him. You don't wake up in the morning and say, thank God that I'm a union pipe fitter. Thank God that I'm a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor. Thank God that I landed a good job being a trash truck driver, which is a great job. Um, no. You don't wake up and thank God that you're black, white, Hispanic, of mixed ancestry, Caucasian, or Asian. No, that is not your foundational reality if you're a believer. You don't wake up and say, God, how I thank you that I was born a male or a female. What matters is that the ground at the foot of the cross is level and that all can gain access to the blessings of the covenant of grace through faith alone. That is what Paul's concern is here. Now, was Paul ingeniously penning the death of racism, slavery, and sexism in our passage? The clear thing is, is that Paul has seen the apocalypse of faith, the revelation of faith, and he is concerned about Jesus and his glory and how all men can come to his kingdom by repentance and faith. And so that gives us much comfort. If you are of a despised race, a downtrodden economic situation, or you're a woman tired of chauvinism, if you get your foundational reality in Christ, it will make it much easier when you see these things for you to say, none of this is anything in comparison with the glory to come. Now, I realize Karl Marx in the background would be saying, yes, that is you pumping out the opiate for the masses to keep them silent, right? Um, beloved, once you've tasted heaven, such arguments have no hold. Once you see your foundational reality in Christ and that you have vital union and communion with him, such talk is folly. 
Paul's point is amazingly clear, and he summarizes basically the same point up in Ephesians 2.13 and following, and I'll close with that. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Jews and Gentiles, not as the Mormons would have it, where it's the people in the Americas, right? Uh, For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you cast yourself on him, that is true of you. You are members of God's household. Your foundational reality is that you belong to Jesus. Now, in this world, ultimate equality is ultimately unattainable. We have it on good word. Jesus tells us that the poor will be with us always. Now, it is true that our politicians seek to ameliorate those things, and I hope that we do, too, in our own personal ways and callings. By the way, when your politicians push for those things and work for those things, pray for them. And support them where your conscience is clear and you can. But the fact of the matter is, is that inequity is characteristic of this present evil age. Yet for the Christian, for those who have received Abraham's inheritance, we are one in Christ. All those former dividing markers of identity have been abolished. And we see that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Consider and think about this. We are one in Christ, and and look around you. Have you ever considered as you look around the church? Ask yourself this question. I, I often ask it. I've probably talked to you about it. If it wasn't for my baptism, if it wasn't for my membership in Christ's church, would I be hanging out with these people next to me? Would I be enjoying meals with them? Would I be asking them how they're doing and praying for their welfare? Interesting question. I would submit to you probably no. Yet the Christian message is that water is thicker than blood. The water of baptism binds Christ's church in a way that the greatest utopias aspire to, yet fail to attain. And God forgive us when we show a bad sign through our fellowship. God forgive us when we place any identity before our union with Christ in baptism. Christ has promised us a home where equity reigns and calls us to be a signpost of that world in a sick and dying world. So, beloved, be faithful. Love God and your neighbor and show the world what the kingdom is like this week through your foundational reality that you are Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that it makes us uncomfortable 
We're always tempted to fashion an idol, to make you to be what we want you to be. But Father, you're the Holy One of Israel who ought not be meddled with. You tell us what things are and what things aren't, and you call things as they are, and you call us to conform our minds to you and to your way. So we ask that today and this week you would conform our minds, our thoughts, and our actions more and more in accordance with Christ our Redeemer. Father, bless the offering. We pray that this would be used to the magnification of Christ through the preaching of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.